I decided to pack my bags with one suitcase, move to San Francisco, one-way ticket. So I quit my job, and this is during the Great Recession. Really bad time to quit, but I, I just felt like it was the right step. Welcome to episode seven of the Idea Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Cho. So one question that comes to mind when I'm trying to evaluate impressive people is how many times have you successfully been able to reinvent yourself? Because to me, it's one thing to be successful in one vertical or domain, but to be successful in multiple avenues at different stages in your career is something that I pay close attention to. This week's episode was a blast to record. My guest, Youngsu Chung, was an excellent example of somebody who has reinvented themselves multiple times and continues to do so. He started his early career in finance before becoming a software engineer at Ripple, and then he went on to become a serial entrepreneur, starting two e-commerce brands and launching a third-party logistics company under a personal holding company umbrella. More recently, he has become active as a creator. He has over 25,000 followers on X, a newsletter with over 10,000 subscribers under the title First Class Founders, and an incredible podcast under the same name where he breaks down tactical tips related to entrepreneurship, management, and being a creator. One of the incredible things about the internet is that it regularly exposes you to excellence, and my crossings and conversation with Youngsu was a great example of this. After this episode, I highly recommend checking out Youngsu's podcast and newsletter. Again, it's under the name First Class Founders. And with that, please enjoy my conversation with Youngsu Chung. So, Youngsu, I think there's uh, a handful of reasons why I'm excited for this conversation. One is because the the background that you have is like quite diverse in that. I think maybe looking at just your your early background of having bounced around within finance and also at, at Ripple, which I'm I'm curious how that kind of came to be. But then mm-hmm. eventually the transition to becoming a founder, starting your own personal holding company and making that essentially a multi-million dollar revenue generating holding company. And then also your transition more recently into kind of the creator space. Uh, was quite fascinating. There's almost like three distinct stages that I saw in kind of following your background. But I just most recently became active on X or Twitter. And I had an account for quite a while, but I was mostly just like following interesting people that were doing interesting things and kind of lurking in the backgrounds. So maybe I'll start there and I'll bounce around a little bit. But can you tell me about your decision to start posting on Twitter because you have generated quite uh, a large following. And I realize that some of that has ramped up even more recently. So we'd love to hear kind of the backstory or motivation for even deciding to put yourself out there. Yeah. So great question. I was an early user of Twitter, which was called back then, probably what, like 13, 14 years ago, I was like on there pretty early. But I didn't really see a a need for it for me at the time. And I mean, this is obviously things have changed now. Like this is before threads, you know, the way people got really, really like viral in 2020, 2021 was through threads, but this is way before that. And so I didn't really understand like the point of it. And so I was obviously busy building my career and also my companies. And I just initially wanted to 
become wealthy, but remain anonymous. And because I just felt like, you know, I didn't want a target on my back and thought that the the best way to position this is have a lot of money, but no one knows who you are. But I've since changed my opinion on that. And now I actually think that by being more of a public figure, you're attracting a lot of people that can either A, help you get to your next goals, and B, it attracts people that want to learn from you. If I'm talking about a certain topic, then the people who are interested in that topic will find me. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you found me because I'm posting interesting things on there. And so it's a really, it's not a thing of like, you know, we're not like, I'm not talking about like celebrities here where I'm like, they literally just post whatever they want and they get tons of engagement. But like, I'm very strategic about what I'm posting, which is a very specific topic. Like I don't post about sports, but I, I love sports, right? I, I'm a huge Boston sports fan, but I don't post about it because I don't care to attract people that are in that area, at least not yet. Right. So I just realized that it's just a powerful platform to put yourself out there and Essentially, you're creating your your own luck by people remember you and they'll tag you in other posts when people are asking. So like the other day, I was like, so I have a 3PL for e-commerce brands. And somebody asked like, hey, I'm looking for a reliable 3PL. Like, is you know, does anyone know a good one out there? And like someone else tagged me because I wasn't even aware of it. Someone else tagged me in that thread because I just talk about it a lot online. And I, you know, I talk about it on the podcast. So it's kind of like this thing where if people know who you are and what you do, then they're in the back of your their minds. And then they'll kind of like almost like do the heavy lifting for you in terms mm-hmm. of like either getting clients or or finding someone for, for a new hire. Like there's so many different, I don't know, like magical serendipity that happens when you put yourself out there. So that's really the reason why I wanted to you know, start start kind of posting online. It makes a lot of sense, but you also have a lot to talk about on X because you have done a lot in your career. And one of the things that I do want to pull the thread deeper on is the personal holding company. You founded and and started three companies, two of which I think are e-commerce companies and then the 3PL company that Mm -hmm. you had mentioned, but maybe even like backtracking before that, becoming a founder and an entrepreneur I'm 26 right now. I'm about to be 27 in a couple of weeks. And even over the course of the last four to five years, I've had a handful of different professional experiences and kind of sampling those experiences, thinking about what I like and what I don't like. My aspirations and and career drives have evolved over time. When you first were in even undergrad and the first couple jobs following, in terms of how you thought about your career, was becoming a founder or entrepreneur like always part of the expectation or dream there? So I went to college at Bowdoin College up in Maine, liberal arts college, really small school. But I remember this when during Thanksgiving, during my junior year, I was, my parents are, are in Korea. And, and so I Thanksgiving is a very awkward holiday for me because I can't go to Korea for three days. So I, I usually just tag along with, with like a friend, right? And so I was at one of my friends' house just for Thanksgiving. And I had a book that essentially it was like how to start a hedge fund. The book was called like how to start a hedge fund. It was a very specific technical book. And the reason why I had that book was because I was in, you know, I was planning on starting a company 
But at the time I was in finance because I was like doing the whole finance thing. And so I was curious about how to position myself to be able to start my own hedge fund because that was my dream way back, right? And so I was already positioning myself and gearing myself to do this. And so the key thing here is, you know, whatever career you start off, like whatever job you, you get out of college and stuff, like you're not just going there and, you know, doing your job. That's like, that's basics. But like what I did was I would go to the job and essentially I would analyze how each department interacts with another department. Oh, okay. There's a compliance team here. Okay. What do they do? Oh, there, you know, there's a trading desk. What do they do? Like I was analyzing the flow of information, the flow of, you know, just general like company formation and like operations. And that for me was always at the back of my mind, which is like, how do I start a company successfully? And so everything I did during college, the few years I was working in, in finance and a couple of years after that I was working in, in, in tech, I was always viewing things from the angle of how do I leverage this experience to mm. start my own company one day. And so the first couple of years you had an experience in finance and I did see in just looking in your background, you had somehow stumbled upon becoming a software engineer at Ripple for yeah. a period of time. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm interested in the crypto space. I'm also interested in things that scale and coding is obviously a, a very attractive skill set to have. How did how did you stumble upon that opportunity? This is going to be a slight detour from the rest of the conversation. But how did how did you find that opportunity and can you just talk a little bit about the experience at Ripple? Yeah, sure. So when I moved to San Francisco from New York City, because I was living in New York for two years after I graduated from college and I was on the trading floor, like I was, you know, I was in finance. But then I just realized that there was no tech or startup community in New York City at the time, which is like 2010, right? Pretty early. Yep. And so, you know, I was like devouring podcasts and YouTube videos on startups. And I was like, these are the people I need to be, to be around with. This is where the future self of me, like where I'm going to be. And so mm. I decided to pack my bags with one one suitcase, move to San Francisco, one-way ticket. So I quit my job. And this is during like the Great Recession, right? And so really bad time to quit. But I, I just felt like it was the right step. And so I came here, San Francisco, one, one suitcase. I only knew one high school friend and one college friend. Mm-hmm. And I was sleeping on the floor of my high school friend's apartment. And for three months, you know, I was like saving as much money as possible, looking for a job, looking for a place to live. And that was like the beginnings of my days in San Francisco. Basically, I was I thought I was essentially starting my life over, right? Hmm. But I'll tell you how the finance thing comes into play at Ripple. So just hold on to that thought. So I was at a startup called Keep, K-I-I-P, for about two years. Hmm. And it was great because I, you know, I was able to meet a lot of talented people in the space, a lot of networking opportunities. This is what I was looking for when I moved from New York. But then the company started to not not do as well. And so I decided to double down on on software engineering. And so essentially what happened was like I moved to San Francisco with the goal of starting my own company. Remember, everything that I did from college on was to start a company. Hmm. And so I wanted to find an engineer, a co-founder, a technical co-founder. And that was all the, you know, the 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 rage back then, which was like okay, you have a business co-founder and then you have a technical co-founder. And so that was yep. like the perfect 
I remember when like Y Combinator was, you know, this is right around 2011 or so. It was like pretty new still. And they were like, yeah, you need a technical co-founder, right? So anyways, I was at Keep and I thought that I could find like an engineer to, to partner with. But you know, what's funny is like engineers kind of look down on business development people. And like, mm -hmm. I always never understood why when I was on that side. But now that I've been on the other side, I, I totally understand it. But I just needed to get more software engineering chops. And so I went to a, a boot camp called, called Hack Reactor and they were amazing. It was 12 weeks. And by the end of it, I was like full stack engineer. Ripple came to recruit at this program. And it was incredible because I had finance background and they were looking to build out a trading platform and so here I was with software engineering background and also literally I worked on the trading desk of a few hedge funds mm -hmm. from New York. And so they're like, you're the perfect fit. Like you should just come and build this platform for us. Huh. And so that's how the finance background really helped me get the Ripple job. And so I guess one lesson here for, for listeners would be like, if you start over in a career, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're like throwing everything away. Like it mm -hmm. will come back to you at some point, right? And so just like it did here where my finance ex experience, which I thought I had left behind, actually helped me get the job at Ripple as a software engineer. And so I worked at Ripple for a year and a half from March, 20, 2014 till September, 2015. And it was a blast. I mean, I worked with some of the smartest people. Some of these, some of these guys were like early Bitcoin people. And, and yeah, they're like crazy smart. And so that experience was awesome. But I, I decided to leave because all the regulations started hitting the crypto market. Mm -hmm. And my team was literally told to stop progressing our project. Huh. Like we were, we were blocked by compliance. And so, you know, at the time I was frustrated, but then when I look back on it, I totally understand uh, why they had to do that. But yeah, it was, it was a, it was a tough time at, at towards the end of it. And so I decided to, I guess, leave and start my first company, Urban EDC. So. Yep. And and when you were at Ripple, I mean, you talked about earlier the piece of, hey, you had read this book about like how to start a hedge fund or something like that. When you were at Ripple, was the idea still, even if it was in crypto, hey, I would be doing something financial related and potentially managing a hedge fund? Or was the shift, did the shift already happen where it was, hey, I want to be an entrepreneur and a founder and the seed was planted while you were at Ripple to start Urban EDC? How did, how did that kind of transition yeah. happen? Great question. So when I moved to San Francisco, my focus was less on starting a hedge fund and starting more of like a, a tech company. Hmm. So I had the big vision of like starting my own company one day, yep. but the journey took a different path. Goal was still the same, but the journey took a different path into starting some kind of tech company at some point. Right. And then ironically, the journey also took another turn when I decided to launch an e-commerce shop using no-code tool Shopify, mm. which was just starting to really get going. This is 2015. And so I definitely utilized that wave of the no-code tools to just launch a company when people were saying that you needed a, a co-founder, a technical co-founder. But because of no-code, you didn't really need to do that anymore. And so I just kind of jumped on it. Yeah. And tell me about the start because... I think there's a lot of creators and a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs who want to do something independent in business and kind of be their own boss. But yeah. it takes some serious guts 
to actually make that commitment. And you also have to have an idea that you feel like you're positioned to execute on. So with Urban EDC, the, I guess, idea, like when that was first incepted and what kind of preparation you did in advance to actually give that a shot. Can you kind of walk through those early stages? Because even for me as in somebody that it would love to run a business myself, like that requires a lot. At least it feels from the outside looking in, right? Maybe maybe the whole simplicity kind of start small and and grow from there is like the the key thing. Um but I'm just curious you had the the guts after Ripple to try this on your own and like what what did it take in terms of preparation to actually make that happen? So, you know, I, I look at kind of uh micro factors and macro factors. So micro factors are things that are more internal to you. So these are like your hobbies. These are things that you're good at, right? So for me, I realized that I was interested in just these little things that you carry. So, you know, I was, I was geeking out about flashlights. I was geeking about, about like, you know, these like desktop toys or like well-machined titanium pens. And so you know, an exercise that I did was I looked at all my credit card statements and I, re- I I looked at like what I was spending my money on. And obviously like things like groceries and utilities, like that's a separate thing. Like you need those to to live, but like all the discretionary spending, mm-hmm. like you can kind of tell like what you're into. And so like, I realized I was like into this everyday carry gear. And so I thought that that was a really, you know, interesting niche to get into. And so I started building my audience. So Instagram was the platform back then. This is right around when people were going from like people taking photos from their DSLR cameras of like nature and like posting like those, those were the days of Instagram back then. Right. But I built my audience on, on Instagram. And then that's when I, when I left Ripple. And so I, I launched Urban ADC about three weeks after that. And so it was interesting and I was definitely working like my tail off. I, I think I went like a, a week straight without going outside once. Wow. Like, it, yeah, it was insane. And it was just continuous. Right. And I, I remember like, I didn't feel stressed. I, I was just more like, it's kind of like a, in a startup, you have to not run out of money. And so basically like, I was just so focused on like making it back, you know, so that I could make this a full-time thing that I just like the concept of time just completely disappeared. I was just so focused on this, right? So I'll go like a week, two weeks without even like stepping, going outside. It's kind of crazy, but. What what was the uh, the mindset going in? So did you give yourself like, hey, I've got six to nine months of financial runway to give this a shot. And if I can't make it work and achieve X level of success by this date, I'm just going to go and look for a normal job. Was that kind of the yeah. mindset that you went in with? And like, where did you start to see the traction? How long, how long roughly did it take? Because it's pretty stressful when you first start and you're not yeah. finding that traction. I, I imagine that that is like to step into that uncertainty is it probably was transformative in terms of your maturity, but it's also just like terrifying to some extent. It's definitely scary for sure. Uh, I think I had around, had around six months of, of runway, personal runway. But you know, what's funny is I, I feel like it depends on the project. So like e-commerce shop selling gear that people already, I already knew that people would, you know, like, like this stuff. Right. And mm. so it wasn't like, I'm starting a completely new startup, a tech startup where I'm like reinventing an entire market. Like yep. that's a way bigger risk. And I think that you kind of need to like either raise VC money for that or just be really careful when you leave or whatever. Like that's a that's a huge risk, right? But for me, you know, e-commerce shop, 
didn't really feel like it was a big risk just because I knew the market was there because I was already building my audience for it. And people were asking like, where can I buy this? And I would just tell them, Hey, go to, you know, go to this maker. He, he can make it for you whatever. Right. So like, I already knew the market was there. Yep. I just needed to ex execute. One of my strengths is operational execution. And mm -hmm. so I just knew that I could just double down on that, my strength. And that's, I mean, I honestly, I thought it was just a matter of time before it, it kind of, I don't know, like took off a little bit. Right. And so it's just about like really at the beginning, it's about hard work. It's about consistency and, and just really sticking with it. Like just never giving up. Yeah. One, one more question, maybe from a strategic lens on urban mm -hmm. EDC. So EDC stands for everyday carry. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. And so you guys are selling like flashlights, pocket knives, kind of mm -hmm. rugged accessory items, right? That I feel yes, like a yes. lot of guys my age would be very much into. When you were starting that, like I would think at least my mindset would be like Amazon exists. I'm sure there's a, a handful of other niche, you know, mm -hmm. e-commerce shops that exist. It is maybe a commodity in a market that is very competitive. Was that, you, you seem to have identified that there was a need in the marketplace for something like that. So I guess, where were you drawing on the signal to actually make that, make that jump? Yeah. So obviously Amazon exists. Amazon, you could buy anything, but what I've noticed is that, you know, when I was building my audience on Instagram, a common question that I was getting was like, where can I buy that item? And they would, because it's like, these are photos of like people, we call them pocket dump photos where you just kind of pour everything from your pockets and you like position them in a nice, like beautiful way. And you take a photo from the you know top down. Yep. Um, but, you know, people were asking like, where do you get that pen? But then the thing is, these things were not available on Amazon. They're made huh. by like small makers from their garages. And these, you know, these makers are, they make like 15 pens a month, for example. And huh. they're expensive. They're like over $200, $300, but people buy them. Yep. And because it was like, where can I buy that item or who made this? So my logical answer was, all right, what if I just have all of these items that are really hard to get that everyone's asking? And I just have it on a website so that people can, and, and we'll have drops. So every Wednesday we have a drop. So it's always like, you know, things sell out really quickly. And, and so it's kind of this model of like the drop model where every Wednesday we drop all of our new stuff. And then if you get it, you get it. If you don't, then better luck next time. Like, yep. and that way I kind of, I don't know, it's like almost like a game. Like it, the, the chase of trying to get an item is just as important as getting the item. Makes a lot of sense, but I guess so. And then in terms of the timing, so you started urban EDC, right? probably incredibly stressful the first few months where you're figuring mm -hmm. all this out, but then you find some success. And then in terms of the timeline, I guess, maybe is it years later, you decide to also launch, is it called Spotted by Humphreys? Is that is that the, yeah. the right name? Yeah. Right. And then again, on top of that, what seems like maybe a natural extension to some of the e-commerce companies you're already working through is this third-party logistics company. So could you briefly, I guess, touch on those two yeah. companies, what they do and like why you started them? So my wife and I brought home a, a French bulldog in 2017 and we had no plans of him, you know, gaining an audience. But I mean, first of all, like I'm biased, but he is a very good looking French bulldog <laughs> and he's super goofy. And so, you know, this is right around the time when like Instagram was promoting their videos. And so videos were just launching on the platform. Hmm. And so we'll bring this full circle, which is the macro conditions. Cause I talked about micro, which is mm -hmm. looking inward towards yourself. The macro condition is 
you want to look at these platforms and see what they're promoting. And so like Instagram, because they were promoting more videos, you can ride that wave by posting more funny videos and, and things like that. And it'll be a lot easier before everybody comes in to to get it, get an audience, right? And so, uh, yeah, we just rode that macro trend of Instagram promoting videos. And a lot of the videos that we posted went viral. Some of them went like got millions of views and we got, you know, an audience pretty quickly. And so at one point we just realized like, you know, people were asking the same questions like, where can I buy that harness? Where can I get that leash? And so instead of like doing an affiliate thing to Amazon whatever, or, or, you know, whatever, like we were like, why don't we just build our own shop? Cause we already did it with urban EDC. It's the yeah. same thing. Literally it's the same thing, except different website, different front interface, but backend is exactly the same. Right. And so, uh, yeah, a year later, so in 2018, we launched Spotted by Humphrey, the dog boutique, you know, that's been a lot of fun as well because like i get to hang out with my dogs and you know my wife we go on trips together and we just take photos when we when we're out and you know those are all just marketing expenses and so i'll I'll get into why this is important when we go into personal holding company but yep. basically uh, yeah 2018 spotted by humphrey and then 2019 is growth jet which is climate neutral certified third-party logistics company and so what happened was we launched Growth Jet with no name, no website, no logo, nothing. Hmm. And we, we we were in this kind of like a warehouse space where there were a lot of e-commerce startups working along with us. And they saw that we were also growing and they were like, hey, who who's doing your fulfillment? Because our fulfillment is a huge pain point. And so I actually used a 3PL before and I had some horror stories. Like literally the company was stealing, employees were stealing some of my, my knives, pocket wow. knives that could be like 600 bucks. Right. And so I just realized that there was a need for this service. And so I just started fulfilling on my own. And then other companies were like, Hey, can you help us with our fulfillment? And so just kind of like we had paying clients before we had a website, before we had a name. And then a year in, we decided to brand it as growth jet. And then we moved into a warehouse. So right now we're, we're in a 39,000 square foot warehouse in NorCal. And yeah, that's kind of the, the story of those three companies. And just to make sure I'm tracking in terms of understanding the third-party logistics company, just because I don't know e-commerce that well, it's like, yeah. I'm Urban EDC, and I'm kind of like an intermediary of sorts between the customer and the suppliers, right? And to get the supplies to the customers requires a lot of logistics and warehousing. And mm-hmm. the 3PL company would kind of be like, hey, we'll manage that entire process from intaking and managing the stock and then also ultimately distributing it. So it's right. like, you're, if you're like Urban EDC and you have a 3PL resource that is doing a great job, it's like, you're just the intermediate. You don't need to do a lot in terms of the management. Is that is that kind of the right picture? Yeah. Basically, the e-commerce, you know, e-commerce has is great, by the way, as a, as a, as a channel. But one huge downside of e-commerce is that there's actual inventory that you got to manage. Um, and so, partnering up with a, a the right three PL can be a game changer because you know they can be they're kind of like your business partner in a way because they handle a lot of your brand experience. Like when when a customer opens a box, like they, you got to make sure like you package it in a way that represents your brand. And so a lot of our brands want to have like custom pack unboxing experiences and stuff. And so like, that's, that works for us, you know? So we have like a lot of brands that are very specific about their packaging requirements and like we can handle it. So makes sense. Yeah, you got, you got it. Yeah. So in terms of the, let's get to the personal holding company dynamic, right? Because mm-hmm. was the 
the personal holding company that you set up, was that something that you had known about and started from the jump with Urban EDC of, hey, there's going to be more companies that'll likely start and I'll set up that infrastructure now? Or is that something that you learned along the way? Definitely not planned. So Urban EDC was the one company that I was working on. And I, I really thought that was going to be you know what I'm going to be doing. But then all these opportunities just started opening up. And then all of a sudden we have like three different parts to this company. And to be honest with you, like I didn't know that there was such a thing called a personal holding company until I started posting on X and I ran wow. across a bunch of other people. And yeah, it's like a huge thing. And so I didn't know that that's what I was doing. And so definitely accidental in the way that it that it came came about. But what's funny is all of a sudden, like I have eight years of experience running a personal holding company while people are are finding out about it. And these people are some of them are like. They're quite large for you know large creators. <laughs> They're like D- DMing me. They're like, "Hey, uh, can you talk to me about a personal holding company?" Because mm. they want to set one up too. And so, it's funny that all of a sudden I got put into this like authoritative position of talking about personal holding companies. Yeah. But I didn't even know that it that it, it was called a personal holding company. And so that's kind of a, a funny thing that happened. It sounds like even uh, with the expertise that you now have or the experience that you now have, you could set up a separate consulting shop for personal yeah. holding companies and, and charge uh, clients there. So I guess for somebody who doesn't know kind of what a personal holding company is, in terms of the mm-hmm. difference and the benefits of you managing your three companies just independently as separate individual enterprises and, and whatnot versus having them within a personal holding company, is there like a a high level summary you can give in terms of how it's structured and what the benefits are? So let's talk about what a holding company is in general. A holding company is a a company whose function is to just hold other companies. And essentially, holding companies have been around forever. I mean, they've been around the 70s, I think, 80s. Like it's very, you know, it's very popular and common. But I would say the difference here is that a regular holding company has other shareholders and usually you know you're going for maximizing shareholder value mm-hmm. and so you're essentially you're looking at companies to buy or take a stake in and you're only really looking at financials and so it's almost like a private equity type you know environment where you're looking to buy a piece of a, a company that's you know doing a ton of cash flow right whereas a personal holding company is really about yourself and so there's no other like shareholders or investors or you know things you have to worry about it's it's serving you and so you know i thought I, th- I told you about the whole like spot about humphrey like we you know we, we we get to travel with our dogs and and all that and like that's important because you know all that is marketing expenses so we can deduct you know their business ex- trips when we go up to napa for example like we bring our dogs we take photos of things that they're wearing because we have a shop, we're able to deduct business expenses from that. And so it's a really fun thing that we do. And that works within our PHC. And then growth jet is there's a lot of shipping costs involved. And the mm-hmm. shipping costs all go through a credit card for me. And so I get a lot of cash back on, the, on those shipping expenses. Huh. And so I'm actually able to make a living off of the credit card cash back from the shipping company. So even if you're a entrepreneur and you have a single company, there still could be benefit, even if you don't have any expectation that you'll start another company to potentially set up a personal holding company because of some of those benefits. Is that is that potentially true? 
I would definitely, if you're just starting out, don't think about a personal holding company yet. I would mm. say just build one successful business and then you'll learn a lot from that. And then you can kind of see what other types of companies you can either start or you could buy them. And so, for example, like, you know, later on when we have a ton of cash flow that I, I plan to like buy a warehouse, for example, because I have GrowthJet, GrowthJet needs warehouses. And so there's a lot of like tax benefits where I can do a cost segregation where I can like depreciate the entire warehouse early. And so like if I'm cash flowing positive, like, like crazy, then I can get a warehouse, depreciate it and not pay taxes. And so there's a lot of benefits like that that will be kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it. So I haven't done those yet, but you know, as I build out the personal holding company, that's what this allows you to do, which is like have different entities function differently to benefit yourself, whether that's like your enjoyment, like you're having a lot of fun with something or, you know, something financial, like you're trying to, you know, legally pay less taxes. Right. And so it's a, it's a very interesting concept where it, it's, you're not optimizing for shareholder value, like a regular whole co you're optimizing for yourself, whether that's your enjoyment, your fulfillment, you know, or your, your cash flow in a way. Right. So it all really depends on like what you want to do with your personal company, but that's why it's so exciting because it's so flexible. Maybe it's on your Twitter or on the homepage of like first class founders. You have uh, a, a statement that says the future of business is personal. And yeah. maybe that's like a double entendre to some extent because personal in terms of the personal holding company kind of identity that you you have, yep. uh, but also yep. personal in terms of like you are a creator. People have trust in you with what you're posting and the podcast that you're running and they, they buy more products because of that. The original impetus to even go into the creator space and become yeah. more public like you you started three companies they were generating you know multiple millions in revenue and it was it seems like things were going quite well why why decide to also kind of pursue the creator space what was the thought process there i think so i obviously people out there who are way further ahead than me right and so I wanted to get myself out there and be able to connect with them. So I have a podcast and like the people that I used to look up to when I was in New York, you know, I was watching these YouTube and like listening to these podcasts. Like what's crazy is I, there's one podcast in particular, Mixergy with Andrew Warner. Hmm. And that's the podcast I've been listening to and watching since, you know, 2009, 2010. But I interviewed Andrew Warner for my podcast. And so it's crazy because I, you know, I've been looking up to this guy for, for a while and all of a sudden now I'm interviewing him. Uh, and so, you know, journey is, is really about like, it's kind of like a web and you're like, you know, wind is blowing and you're like catching a lot of things and like, you don't know what you're going to catch it's, but it's, 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 but you know, something's going to come out of it. You just don't know what, what opportunities are going to come. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I just thought that, you know, it's too good of an opportunity to, to pass up. And so I needed to, to get, get on, get on, you know, sh sharing my journey. And, and what was it because you have, you have a podcast and you have a newsletter. I think newsletter yeah. has something like 10,000 plus subscribers to it. And yeah. the kind of personal branding is first class founders, right? Yeah. And yeah. first class founders is not um, tangentially, I guess, directly related to any of the three enterprises that you're, you're running. What was the decision to start to market or produce content focused on founders? Why not try, try something new, I guess is, is, is the, the broader question. 
try something new as an, as an, oh, you mean like a new, new company, like another e-commerce Either another company something? or even positioning your content around existing brands that you already had to try and push, push those, those mm. products to do well. I guess what, what was the, what was the interest around doing yeah. first, first class founders? I thought about who I wanted my audience to be. And, you, you know, when I focus on founders, because the, the thing that I also found myself doing a lot is like when I go to you know, parties or like have dinner gatherings. Like if there's someone who's like building a business, like literally all we'll do is talk business for like hours. Like literally I could talk business for hours. <laughs> and yeah. and so I just thought that this is kind of like, I already enjoy it. So I can literally, I can just record, record a podcast just talking about business. And so this is already something that I enjoy doing. And, you know, if I wanted to push Airbnb DC or Spotify Humphrey or GrowthJet, I guess growth jet works a little better, but basically if I wanted to do like Airbnb DC, for example, like that would be a B2C play where I'm talking to other collectors of everyday carry to try to grow Airbnb DC. Mm. Same thing with Spotify Humphrey, you know, these would be like other dog owners. So this would be a B2C play. Growth jet is, would really be the only B2B play here, but I would be targeting e-commerce founders, which by mm. the way, I, I can do and I've done on first class founders, but I didn't want to limit myself to just being an e-commerce guy because I, I don't know, e-commerce, I've done e-commerce for a while now and I kind of wanted to branch off a little further beyond it. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I just thought that a, a BDB audience of talk, just talking to founders was uh, a more compelling and interesting thing for me. And so I'm just leaning into like what gives me enjoyment and joy. And so that's kind of what I, what I went with. So there's a question that I know you get asked a lot, which is you have these three companies. You're also doing stuff in the creator space. There's yeah. a lot of kind of responsibility and management that goes on, I would imagine. How how do you yeah. do all of that and manage all of that? What is what were the key kind of learnings to continue to to still like have a life that's enjoyable for you, yeah. but also manage all these responsibilities? It, it sounds like a lot. So I'm just curious how you allocate your time and your your energy. Yeah, I'm I'm constantly evaluating my time and how I'm spending it. And if I can delegate to someone, then I will. And and this is always a work in progress. And so for example, like, you know, I recently hired an executive assistant. So she helps me with scheduling. She helps me with I mean, you 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 know, we when we were scheduling this, she yep. she helped us out. And so I'm definitely getting her trained up on it. And she also helps me out with a newsletter. So she'll actually create the the bones of the newsletter. And so I just have to fill in like a few things, like the links and like, I got to write my like weekly journal entry thing, but everything is there. And she manages all the cross promos. She's starting to manage sponsors now. And so she's responding to sponsor requests and, you know, she's able to do that. And so obviously I was doing all that maybe five months ago, right? But now... I'm training an executive assistant to help me with with all this. And so I want to delegate as much as possible. And it's not only tasks, though. It's like your thinking, your thought process. So like every time I like delegate something, I always provide some context to it. So like here's why I did it this way so that there's a little bit of understanding. And so that decision-making skills on the next one, next iteration will be a lot better than just like, this is what you're going to do. And it's like, okay. And that's it. Like there's no like context there. Then it's like, I mean, it, that that's fine if it's a very concrete, like, you know, like back office task, like, oh, you got to do this every Monday or whatever. But like, it doesn't yeah. work if you want to really have them think and like create and make decisions for you. 
And so, yeah, the, the, I guess the, the, the answer to your question is that I try to delegate as much as I can and delegate well so that it's not just tasks, but it's decision-making, it's thought process, you know, it's, it's all that stuff. And I'm curious from an operational lens in terms of the, the, the three companies that you're running. So one of the maybe trickiest parts of transitioning from an operator and a founder to being more of a manager and investor, let's say, is you're so used to like running the business in the day-to-day operations and all of the details and kind of having being fully dialed into all that, that it often becomes hard to kind of detach yourself from it and let somebody kind of run the ship. In terms of like how you have actually found operational talent that you can trust, has it mostly been a a testing phase that you go through? Like, how do you even source talent? Like, what has the process been for some of the hires that you've made? Yeah, so this is a really tricky thing. So for Airbnb DC, the operator I have now, he's been with me since very early stages. And he actually started off as a customer service rep. And so he came in and and crushed it and, and eventually worked himself up to where he is now. It's been mm-hmm. years, right? I think it's like probably four years four or five years. But the point is that he's he was able to do that because what I'm basically what I'm doing is I'm constantly evaluating talent to see what their path can be. And mm-hmm. so even if their path is not the operator level, I'm still evaluating them because all employees want a direction, right? They want to know like where can I be in a year when I accomplish X, Y, and Z. And so when you look at, when you think of a life cycle of an employee, you have to make sure that they feel like they're accomplishing, like with, with their skill sets, like put them in, in, a, in a position where they're going to succeed. But at the same time, like you have to show them a vision for a future that, Hey, I can reach this point if I do certain things. Right. Yeah. And so I constantly think about that. And so when I have people coming in to the company, I'm always evaluating them like, okay, can they be the operator? that manages the entire company. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like a lot of times it's it's a no. Like I'll test them and they'll hit a certain ceiling and then that's it. Like it's 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 challenging. Yeah. And I actually for one of my companies growth jet, you know, I thought I had an operator that I could rely on, but just quite wasn't there. And so you know, we kept hiring and then we hired someone who's really good and now he is the general manager for growth jet. But what's what was challenging is because I was testing to see, you know, if these other employees were going to be the general manager, it didn't work out. And there was a little bit of like a shakeout at the company. And mm-hmm. so because this newer guy came in when like, you know, was doing a great job, like the the other employees, I think, felt like maybe they they had a chance. But to be honest, like I was evaluating them and I, I would I'm very, very equal opportunity of everything. Like if you prove that you can do it, like I will give it to you. But sometimes it doesn't work out. And that's just the nature of the beast. Yep. Maybe, maybe just a switching gears because I am curious on the whole creator side of yeah. your presence on X and you investing the time and energy to start a podcast like learnings from the podcast and specifically value that you're getting out of it. I mean, if somebody, if somebody were to ask you, like, should I start a podcast? I know like from personal experience that even starting and growing a podcast is one of the hardest things to do, Um, but that a lot of the value might be hidden from like the download count and listener count. And it's often in the relationships you're built. 
that are built. So I'm just curious how your podcasting journey has been, what your expectations were when you started and you know why you continue to do it and enjoy it so much. So this is a great question. So you know what's funny is literally the, the episode that I'm recording right now is the lessons I learned growing my podcast for the first year. Because it's, it's been one year since I launched the podcast. And this episode is about those lessons. And so this is this question is like perfect. And so, awesome. I mean, expectation-wise, I, I I really thought that because I had Urban EDC and spotted by Humphrey's audience that they would at least be interested in, in, in listening. But honestly, they didn't care because obviously the audience is very different. Like I mentioned, it's B2B audience, you know, founders versus like, EDC people or dog people, like it's very different. So, you know, I really thought, I thought that I could launch with at least maybe a hundred listeners, let's say, cause you know, I've got thousands, you know, of followers on Instagram for these accounts, but nothing, there's like no transition. And so I had to start over. And what's funny is, you know, when I was posting on, on Twitter, which is what it was called at the time, I, it was frustrating to me because I was you know, this person who has built this business and I was putting out lessons out there, but no one cared and no one seemed to even acknowledge or even recognize my accomplishments because I had a small audience because I, you know, I didn't, it was small when I first started posting. Right. Hmm. And so the first, most frustrating thing was like, people just don't care about you unless you have a large audience. But the funny thing is, if you have a large audience and you have no business experience, it doesn't matter. People still mm. listen to you because you have a large audience. <laughs> yeah, That's the most frustrating part because I thought I have the business experience, but people don't care about that. Um, so anyways, going back to the podcasting thing. So lesson learned here is like you you, you really have to love podcasting uh, because it is a grind. It's the most difficult platform to grow. There's no discovery and you have to really enjoy what you're doing. And I, you know, I mentioned earlier that when I go to these dinners with my friends, I talk business like for two hours and I'm totally energized by it. Yeah. And so basically, I mean, it's kind of the same podcasting is the same thing where I can talk to somebody who is like further along than I am. And I, we can talk business, I can learn. And I mean, it's a great opportunity to, to network and meet people and connect. And, and I feel like that's a really underrated value proposition of podcasting. And I think that overall, to be honest with you, you know, if the show grows and again, it takes a long time to grow, but if it does, then it can be very lucrative. And so a lot of sponsors love the podcast medium because it, it, the trust that you build with the audience is so much stronger than whatever other medium, right? So if you can kind of stick it out for like, I don't know, a year, two years, maybe then, then you will probably be able to monetize it, but you, you really have to be patient with it and enjoy it. You know, you can't force growth. Like I actually did some paid campaigns when I first launched, but like a lot of that ended when I, when I like stopped the promotion. And so it's funny also like the audience isn't, it's not high quality audience. So it's kind of like doing a press release where it's kind of a, you know, it's, Hey, you know, go listen to my podcast. But then like, they may not be your ideal target audience. And like, whereas on X now, when I'm talking about my businesses and personal holding companies, like that's a high targeted audience. Like I'm, you know, my audience that I've attracted, they are interested in what I have to say. And so if they listen to the podcast, like they're going to be a higher value audience than 
the paid stuff that I was doing, right? And so that's another lesson I learned is like, to be honest, the paid stuff is like good for vanity metrics. Like, okay, you have X number of downloads, but like, it's not that great for, you know, you have real listeners who care about what you have to say, right? So then that takes a long time. You just have to get very, you know, you just have to build an audience on one platform, whether it's YouTube, X, LinkedIn, whatever it is, like you got to find listeners or organically. I found that's the best way to really grow a loyal audience, not just like a downloads audience, right? Like an, an actual audience you could talk to and like bounce ideas off of and, and yep. things like that. Yeah. Well, first off, congrats on hitting one year. That's uh, that's awesome. <laughs> and and second is we were talking before about before we started recording about podcasting and the process. And there is a lot of time and energy that kind of needs to go into it. And the discoverability right now for podcasting is not great. I stumbled onto your podcast through X and in anticipation of this conversation, I binged like somewhere between five and 10 episodes. And it's some of like the highest quality content in terms of key takeaways and learnings. I think the one thing that I've thought about with my podcast consumption is how often does the content that I consume actually translate into actions that I can apply in my mm-hmm. life? And I feel like a lot of this stuff in in your content is like directly hitting on actionable insights, which I, I really admire. So hats off to you. And I, I look forward to listening to, to, to much more. Thanks. I appreciate that. I, one, one thing I learned about being a creator and content is that people love concrete actions and also like they love numbers. And so if you say like, I made $3 million doing, you know, working X number of hours, like that will do way better than like, I started a company when I was, you know, whatever, when I was young or something like that, like that's not specific enough. And so like, I learned that the content that resonates is the more specific stuff with numbers and all that. So that's kind of like, you know, why that is the case. Like I've been able to iterate on content that works. And so that's why you're seeing more of that content coming because mm-hmm. in the beginning it wasn't like that. It was more like, you know, more, more a little more like, I don't know, like asp- aspirational, inspirational, but now it's like more tactical stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I'm doing a kind of a learning sprint where I assemble like somewhere between 10 and 15 books on a topic that I'm curious about and just try and become knowledgeable in that domain. And right now I'm going through like a handful of marketing and advertising books. And a lot of those, those principles you pick up on, right. Of like you, one ad can do to do terribly and a slight tweak to the framing can make it so much more successful. Mm -hmm. And then you begin to pick up on it when you look at other content creators, putting stuff out there of why things worked and why things didn't. Whereas had you not been informed of these, I guess, like brain hacks to some extent, then you just, you just wouldn't know why things work and why things don't. So I feel like even as somebody who's not running a business right now, like learning those skill sets is really valuable. And I feel like a lot of those insights I've been gleaning from uh, first-class founders. So I, I appreciate the time. I know we're we're starting to come up on, on that hour mark. I guess from your perspective, just to close here, in terms of aspirations that you have and anything that's changed in terms of your your game plan so you've got these yeah. these three companies you've set up this personal holding company that's bringing in multiple millions of dollars in revenue and you're growing in kind of the creator space is the next year couple of years kind of more of the same and continuing to invest in your personal brand do you have near term aspirations to either add add more companies or do something different i'm curious in terms of your your career trajectory, how you're thinking about it right now. Yeah. So personal holding company is definitely going to be a part of it. So talking more about that, analyzing the companies that I have in my PHC portfolio, 
always evaluate whether or not it makes sense to bring in another one or, you know, maybe sell off one like that's, I'm constantly evaluating that long term. I think that, well, first of all, I'm going to continue to publish, uh, a, a, you know, podcast newsletter. I'm going to be public on, on X posting, you know, my journey. So long term is like, I, I do see myself as someone that I can help others with. Uh, whether it's like starting a business or growing their own business. And like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that I think I, I I can add value to people. And so that's kind of like, yeah, I don't know where, how big I'll, I'll get. I, honestly, I don't know how big I'll get. Like, I, I, and so that's kind of an open-ended question, but then I guess super long-term view is like, yeah, I mean, I, I just see myself as like someone that could one day essentially give advice to people or like be brought on as advisors or investing or, you know, all sorts of stuff. And so that all comes from personal brand. And so personal brand, and actually I'll leave you with, with this, um, a personal brand, it's, it's like a goose that lays golden eggs. Okay. So like, basically it's each business unit has is either a, a golden egg or a goose. And so you want to identify what that what those are. And so if you a personal brand is distribution for whatever you want to do. And so that is your your goose that's going to lay these eggs. And so what's great is that you carry that with you until I guess you I guess you either stop posting or until you die, right? Yeah. Um, and so you don't know, like I don't know what those eggs are gonna be in the future. And like, honestly, some of them could just be duds. Like, okay, let's launch a company. It could be a dud. Like, you never know. But it's a platform that you can leverage to grow and launch. And one of those eggs can become like a golden egg. And then you have something you can either grow into or or, or sell later on, right? And so you want to recognize, you know, look for these properties within your company, whether it's a, it's a goose or a potential golden egg and, and mm-hmm. be able to like, recognize that and so you can like it really helps kind of like reframe the way i look at my personal holding company also is like is this a goose or is this a golden egg like it really helps a lot so yeah i'll just kind of leave it at that i love it well in your in your twitter feed there was a a post and it was on lessons from podcasting and i think one of the things you said is you're going to get a lot of no's from people that have big followings Mm -hmm. and stuff like that but sometimes you're going to be able to have the opportunity to interview people that you never thought you would and so me kind of reaching out to you having a small following but being being very curious about kind of your background and some of the insights from your career really appreciate you kind of spending the time and doing this i'm a big fan of the podcast and will be will continue to be both a listener and following you along on X. So thanks for mu- so much for joining. I appreciate it. Of course, Tyler. And yeah, I mean, I could tell, honestly, the reason why I came on here is because you can tell, because I listened to a few episodes and you can tell that you do a ton of research. And so when you prepare like that, it really makes a difference because uh, a lot of new podcasters, they just want to bring on a big name guest and that's yeah. going to be like help them drive downloads, but it doesn't work that way. Like you have to, if the guest sees that you're putting in the work, like that will get recognized and uh, that will get you better guests, right? So for people who are listening who want to start a podcast, like definitely do your research on the guests. That helps a lot. So yeah. Thanks so much, Young Su. And uh, I'll uh, definitely link First Class Founders, both the podcast and the, the newsletter so people can follow along. So thanks again. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Idea Exchange Podcast. 
For more information on the podcast and more information about myself, you can visit tylercho.com. I also send out a monthly newsletter to friends, family, and colleagues where I essentially share the best ideas that I came across from that month, whether it was books that I've been reading, podcasts that I've been listening to, or just conversations that I've been having. So feel free to subscribe on the homepage of my personal website. Until next time.